0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. For the rest of us we will be in Second Samuel chapter 17, so go ahead and, and open up to that um, chapter if you have a Bible. If not, there are some right in front of you in the chairs We'd love for you to follow along in our text this morning. This morning, we are continuing looking at Absalom's coup of his father David. Uh, we've been following this story for the last several weeks. And uh, yet, I, I was reminded last week uh, by my in laws, of all people, there's a lot of names going on, a lot of, of things that are happening. And kind of, they said, it'd be nice if we had like a, a who's who list on the screen at all times to keep everything, tr- uh, c- keep everyone organized and and to help us remember what's going on. So uh, I'm not doing that. Um, (laughs) Please please don't tell my in-laws that. But I will give you a brief overview of where we're at in the story, all right? So hopefully that will serve the same purpose. You're probably familiar with King David, right? Uh, King David, uh, after the disastrous reign of King Saul, King David was chosen by God to be the leader, the king over God's people. David, as you may well know, uh, was a man, lots of faults, lots of failures. And yet in spite of all that, he was earnest in his desire to follow the Lord. And so David is actually referred to in the Bible a couple times as a man after God's own heart. And yet it's not so much that, but it's actually because of God's commitment to David, not David's commitment to God, but God's commitment to David that we see God makes an everlasting commitment to David. So we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. This is God speaking. Your throne shall be established forever. God promises David that no matter what may come, God's plans, not just for David, not just for Israel, but in reality, as we look at the entire story of the Bible, his plans for all of creation will come to pass through a son of David. And it's this commitment to David that doesn't rely on David's faithfulness, but on God's faithfulness Not on on the faithfulness of David's descendants, but, but on God's faithfulness, God's character. And that's a really good thing, because as we've seen over the last several weeks, David isn't that great of a guy sometimes. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, he does the unthinkable. He sleeps with the wife of one of his army commanders. After that, he kills him in order to cover it all up. And from that moment forward, David's kingdom begins to unravel. David's life falls apart as a part of the judgment that God has upon David for his actions. 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 20 focus on how all of this plays out with death, rape, murder, eventually a coup from his own son, and more rebellion. And if we are reading these chapters in isolation we might be left wondering, did God renege on his promises to David? Did God decide, you know what? You've made such a mess of your life, David, that I, I'm, I'm out of this. Surely there's some fine print here. I can get out of this. That's why this morning we started with 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this promise that God has made to David, not contingent on David's faithfulness, but on God's faithfulness. In spite of all that we see in David's life, in spite of the mess that David makes of his life, God's promises, God's purposes for David and for all of creation through David are still secure and they still stand. uh, 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 20 are not meant to cast doubt on God's commitment to David, but instead we have to read them in light of the promises that God has already made to him. We must not forget the steadfastness of God. In spite of all that David has done, in spite of all that David experiences. In fact, it's the steadfastness of God that allows us to understand what takes place in these chapters. Specifically for us this morning, what takes place here in chapter 17. And yet, God's commitment to David is not explicit in these chapters. Here's what I mean by that. God does not work in 2 Samuel chapter 17 through miraculous intervention, God is at work, behind the scenes, using seemingly ordinary events to do exactly what he wants and exactly what he plans and purposes for David. We saw this last week. It's called providence, this purposeful sovereignty. It's a reminder to us that God is completely in charge of all things, that God orchestrates all of them to accomplish his purposes. It's how God uses the seemingly ordinary events in our lives to accomplish exactly what he intends to accomplish. And so this morning, here in this passage, we see God's providential hand in defeating Absalom, his son, who was rose up as a rival king to him, seeking to kill his own father. We see God's hand providentially at work in restoring David to the throne. In case we're at this spot where we are wondering, is God still committed to David? This text reminds us, yes, God's commitment to David still stands. 2 Samuel chapter 17, I don't know if I can call it this, but I'm going to. It's a fun chapter. It's it's fun to follow. It's fun to read, and it breaks into four parts. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at each part as well, and you might be saying, how on earth is this fun? But it is. It's, It's a lot of fun to read. Let's pray as we jump into God's word. Father, we ask now that you would use your word to speak to each of us this morning. God, even as you stuck with David in spite of all of his sin, because that's who you are, we ask that you would help us to remember that you have promised you will never abandon us, even when our lives are left in shambles. God, we ask that you would use this text to instill within each of us a confidence in your goodness and in the reality that your hand is at work in this world, in our lives, even if we can't see it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our text begins with the counsel of Ahithophel in verses 1 through 4. So just a reminder here, Absalom, David's son, has just entered Jerusalem with Uh, David's former counselor, Ahithophel, has betrayed David and is now working with Absalom. Absalom has entered Jerusalem, declares himself to be the king, but there's a problem for Absalom, and that is David. David is still running free. And so the question as we jump into chapter 17, the question facing Absalom is, what is he going to do with his David problem? Verse 1, Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you. As a bride comes home to her husband, you seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace." Ahithophel is known for his wisdom, and here we see he knows exactly what needs to be done in order to put an end to David's reign. David is on the run. He is disorganized. This takes place less than a day after David escapes from Jerusalem. So Ahithophel proposes striking while the iron is hot. Notice just a handful of points of his plan here. First, Ahithophel proposes that he gather an army together, pursuing David that very night. Now notice the repetition of the word I in these verses. Ahithophel sees no reason for for Absalom to go on this night raid. He thinks that, that it's prudent that Absalom stay in the capital where it is safe. Now I've mentioned this before, but this word thousand in Hebrew can also refer to a military group of an unknown size. So sometimes it's translated as thousands, sometimes it's translated as military company, and a company could range from anywhere from 20 to a couple hundred. So if you're wondering, how does Ahithophel here hope to gather together this army of 12,000 people for this surgical strike in the middle of the night, it's very possible that the number is significantly smaller than that. So his first thing is, he says, I want to gather an army. Second thing he says is, we have to do this now. He stresses the importance of timing. He wants to leave that very night. He knows that David has just escaped. He can't have gotten far, and he is surely tired. And so he stresses speed, because speed is of the essence. Third thing that Ahithophel does, he points out that a sudden attack on David will throw his army into a panic. They are exhausted surely that's not just physical exhaustion, but also emotional exhaustion as well. And an immediate attack on them would strike terror into the hearts of those who are following David. Many of them will likely give up. And then the fourth thing he points out, final thing he points out in his plan, is that this confusion will allow Ahithophel to minimize the number of deaths. And it's almost as if he's painting this picture for Absalom, saying, would there be a better way for you to start your new reign as the king of Israel than by showing benevolence and pardon to all of your enemies? Ahithophel sees this as an opportunity to unite Israel with Absalom at its head. And so Ahithophel says, I will bring the people home, back to their new beloved king who longs for peace. He's a man of peace. He's not a man of war. And it's the perfect plan. And Absalom and his men seem to agree. Verse 4, and the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. There it is. David will be dead by morning. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 31, David had prayed that God would defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. How could that possibly come to pass? Of course, if we're familiar with providence, we should not at all be surprised by what comes next. On the surface, it is a stunning turn of events. Absalom's war council is unanimous in their support of Ahithophel's plan. But for some reason, wink, wink, for some reason, Absalom suggests hearing a second opinion. More significantly, he suggests hearing from David's friend, Hushai, of all people, That brings us to our second section, the Council of Hushai, in verse 5. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Now we're not told Absalom's reasoning for summoning Hushai here. It could just be that he wants a second opinion. It could be, if you notice this, that he is virtually uninvolved in Ahithophel's plan. Remember, Absalom is incredibly full of himself. And Ahithophel's plan might be smart, but it doesn't have the flash and the glory that Absalom loves. Maybe it's a different reason. We're not actually told. But we are told the real reason behind the scenes in verse 14. We'll get to that here in a little bit. So Absalom calls for Hushai when he arrives. Absalom, my goodness, man, what are you doing? He presents Ahithophel's plan to Hushai and says, this is what he has said, can you top that one? So he gives him the advantage here of knowing the entire plan that he is up against. How does Hushai respond? Well, Hushai's plan basically involves two parts. First, undermining and discrediting Ahithophel's plan, and then giving Absalom a quote-unquote better plan that gives David what he needs most, which is time. Let's look at verse 7. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men, And that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. Now it's a bold move for Hushai to say right off the bat that Ahithophel's counsel is not good, but that's how he starts. He qualifies it by saying this time, he's basically saying, you know, people don't bat a thousand in baseball or in real life. And here's a man who who finally has missed the mark this time. He doesn't have this right. Notice how here in these verses, he plays on two things. He plays on Absalom's vanity, and he plays on Absalom's fear. First, and I already pointed this out, who is the main actor in Ahithophel's proposal? It's Ahithophel. Ahithophel. But who is the main actor in Hushai's proposal? His first word is you, which is music to Absalom's ears. He is essentially saying, you know what, I'm flattered, Absalom, that you thought of me, that you wanted my opinion, but you don't, know, you don't need me to tell you what you know very well. In contrast to Ahithophel's picture of David as weak and weary, Hushai describes him as a fierce man in anger, stoking the fears of Absalom. He says, Absalom, has your father ever lost a battle? He stared down Goliath. He has slaughtered Philistines. He has spread his kingdom all the way to the Euphrates. He has men with him who are fierce and wrathful. Any attack that you plan needs just that, planning. What's more, he points out, you know what, David has spent years on the run from Saul. Absalom, do you really think that your father who knows the wilderness like the back of his hand because of how many years he lived there running from Saul, he's going to spend the night in the camp? He knows where every cave is from here to the Jordan River. What makes you think that Ahithophel has any chance of finding him in the middle of the night? to make matters worse. If Ahithophel goes out and does this anyway, and he happens to come across where David's men are, what happens when these fierce men fight back? What happens when people on your side die? Word is going to get out, and the groundswell of support behind you is going to disappear just like that. Ahithophel promises you that he will lead Israel to you like a bride. In reality, he's doing exactly what is necessary to bring them all back to your father. That's brilliant, isn't it? It's brilliant from Hushai here. He plays to Absalom's fears. He plays to his vanity, and he allows himself to propose an alternate plan. Now, remember, Hushai's sole goal here is to delay Absalom's attack and buy David some time. And so to do that, he again relies on Absalom's vanity. Verse 11. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. There's two points here to his counsel. First, Absalom, you should be at the head of the army. People long for a king who fights their battles. You are that king, Absalom. So gather a mighty army of all Israel, from the furthest north in Dan to the furthest south in Beersheba. It will be the greatest army on earth. And you will be at its head. Can you just picture Absalom and his imagination at this point? Absalom with his long flowing hair, blowing in the breeze, standing on his chariot at the, top, at the front of this massive army. And Absalom's going, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's what we need to do. Who could stand against me in all my might? Second, Ahithophel, he wants to only kill David. He wants to show mercy. That's for the weak, not for a king as mighty and glorious as you are. Do you really want traitors in your midst, Absalom? These men with David who have rejected you as their king, show everyone your wrath and your power and your vengeance. Wipe them all out. Leave no one left. With your unstoppable army, there will be no resistance left. Ahithophel wants peace. There will be peace when all of David's friends are dead like him. Nothing can stand in your way. If he is holed up in a city, you can tear it down with ease. If only you have the time to gather an army of the sufficient size. And there it is. What Absalom needs most is time. Absalom can have everything he has ever wanted. His father will have no chance of standing against him. The kingdom will be his. The world will know his glory if you just take a little bit of time. And so the question that Absalom has to ask What matters most, expediency and the risk that that entails or the assurance of knowing what will happen, your fame, your glory, your renown across the earth. How does Absalom respond? And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the council... He, the, the council of Hushai the Archite is better than the council of Ahithophel. Hushai's plan works. Against all odds, he defeats the council of Ahithophel. But it's not just because of his brilliance. And this is brilliant. This is why I think this passage is so much fun. The key to Absalom's decision, indeed the key to the entire chapter, is found in the second half of verse 14. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. We are given insight from this half of a verse that no one in the story is aware of. The narrator wasn't there saying to Hushai, God's doing this. God is working. God has ordained this. No, the narrator pulls back the curtain of all the earthly experience, all the reasoning, all of the discussion here, and reveals what is taking place behind everything. The Lord has ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, behind Ahithophel's misstep by talking about himself at the head of his proposal, behind Absalom's vanity, leading him to seek out a second opinion, behind Hushai's brilliant proposal, is the Lord, and his plans, and his purpose is to defeat this rebellion. He is for David. He has not stopped being for David. Did you know that this is the first time since the events of David and Bathsheba that we are told explicitly that God is still for David? For four chapters, we've been in silence We've been wondering, is God still committed to David? Here it is, explicit, as God pulls back the curtains and shows he is committed to David, that Absalom's rebellion may be a form of discipline upon David, but it is not a condemnation of David. God is steadfastly committed to his plans for his king, for David. He is steadfastly committed to his plans to save all of humanity through David's son. Here we see the hidden providence of God, how God, in his sovereignty, uses all of these actions, all of these desires from people to accomplish exactly what he intends. Do you believe that God is doing the same thing today? Behind everything, everything that you experience is the unseen, hidden hand of God. We are given an unbelievable gift here in 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 14, because God pulls back the curtains and gives us the full picture that he is at work. He is accomplishing his purposes. He intends to rescue David, to defeat Absalom for David's sake. And yet most of the time in our lives, the curtain remains closed. It's shut. The veil remains. We are not given the answer as to why God does that, why God does that. God's providence in our lives remains hidden. But God gives us stories like this, where he pulls the curtain back for half a verse, just half a verse. And it's in someone else's life. It's not in your life. It's not in my life. But he pulls the curtain back to give you confidence that God is at work today as well. That the same hand that was at work in David's day is at work in your day, your life as well. God's hidden providence is at work. It's accomplishing his plans, his purposes in your life that he hasn't forgotten you. God is at work for you, just as he was in David's life. And that can be a great comfort. And it takes a lot of tension out of what we're about to read. We've seen God's plans, his purposes for David and Absalom. We may not know how, but we know what the end has to be. We don't know how God's going to do that. We just can follow along with contentment. These two sons of priests who are running for their lives, we we, we know at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. We know what's going to happen. We've read the last chapter. We can follow along with contentment as God accomplishes exactly what he has intended, exactly as he intends it to happen. But Hushai isn't aware of that. We're going to see that here as we continue on. He doesn't have that divine information like you have, like I have. That tension still exists there for Hushai as he implements his true plan to save David. That's his real plan. And can that just be a word of comfort for for us this morning, a word of, of assurance for us that you might not know how the specifics play out, but you know what the end is going to be. And you might find yourself still living in that tension, but in the broader story, you can be confident in how things will turn out, that God The God of David's day, the God of of our day is the same. His commitment to you has not changed from from his commitment to his people 3,000 years ago. We might not know the specifics. We might still be living in the tension, but we know the end of the story. Let's continue. Verse 15. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim, who was it, had a well in its courtyard. And they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, "'Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan?' And the woman said to them, "'They have gone over the brook of water.' And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem." Notice how this text starts. Hushai is not aware of Absalom's decision in verse 14. He doesn't know that Absalom has said the council of Hushai is better than the council of Ahithophel. He has either left the room before that deliberation, or he wasn't sure that Ahithophel wasn't going to get a second chance to, to rebut for this rebuttal of of Hushai's proposal. So he sends word right away to David. David is about 20 miles away at the Jordan River, and he shares, this is what Ahithophel proposed, this is what I proposed, get over the Jordan River now while you still can. We're not sure what's going to happen. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that David had set up this spy network in Jerusalem, and here it's put into practice. But as luck would have it, the Men who are a part of this network, the, the messengers, they get noticed by someone who is sympathetic to Absalom. And so the sons of the priests, Jonathan and Ahimaz, they run from Enrogel, which is about a quarter mile from Jerusalem, all the way to Bahurim, which is about two miles from Jerusalem. And Absalom's men track them to Behurim, where the trail runs cold. Jonathan and Ahimaz had found allies. They hide in a well Absalom's men, they show up, they ask, hey, where have the priests gone? The woman of the house claims that they've gone on. They can't find them, and they go back to Jerusalem at the end of the story. And here again, we see God's providential hand at work, don't we? Remember, we've been given the second half of verse 14. We know how these things are going to play out. We might not know how, but we know what is going to happen. And here we see God accomplish his purposes through the actions of this woman. And of course, this leaves us with a whole host of questions. Because she lies to save the priest's son, and so then we ask, well, does that mean that God condones lying in some instances? Not necessarily. We don't have time to focus on that. You can ask me after the service if you want to talk more about that. For now, just don't miss the forest for the trees. That's not the main point of the topic or of the, the text. The main point is the hidden providence of God, how God uses ordinary events to accomplish exactly what he intends to accomplish, how God is at work through the ordinary for David's good and for our good as well. Verse 21, After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. So Hushai's message reaches David. David and his men, they make this dangerous night crossing of the Jordan River to escape, and Hushai's plan has worked. And that's the end of the story, but not the end of the chapter. As I was considering this passage, I thought, you know what? The, the end of this chapter is, is really important. Because in the end of this chapter, we see two responses to King David from all of these people. It's a prologue to the war that is to come in the, pre, in the next chapter, And yet it also shows us very clearly two responses to King David. Verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Of all those names, I stumbled over the word encamped. Interesting. Let's start with the second part here first. At some point, Absalom sets out after David. We don't know how long it's been. But the important thing is, by this point, David has reached Mahaniim. It's a city east of the Jordan River. David was relatively secure there. And Absalom and his army gather east of the Jordan as well, and they prepare to attack David. And we'll get to that next week. But don't miss verse 23 and what Ahithophel does here. He can see the writing on the wall and he would prefer to take his own life rather than face execution for treason. Now, I've shared a couple times as we've been working our way through 2 Samuel that it suggests there's a handful of passages, a handful of verses that suggest that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Now the text isn't explicit, but it seems likely that one of the reasons that Ahithophel joins Absalom's conspiracy against David is because of how David ruined his granddaughter's family and murdered her husband. Now that's not explicit, but I think that's what the text is suggesting. Of course, Ahithophel isn't condemned because He was outraged at David's behavior back in 2 Samuel chapter 11. God is outraged at what David has done. Now, Ahithophel is condemned because at the end of the day, he rose up against God's anointed king, a king who, yes, was full of sin and failure, who does despicable things, but God didn't choose David because of his worthiness. God chose David out of a commitment to his people. And at the end of the day, Ahithophel meets the end that he does, not because it's a failed political coup, but because he finds himself opposing not just David, but the God of the entire universe. David is the Lord's king. He's not the Lord's king because he is a better man than Absalom, but because God has chosen him to accomplish his plans and purposes through him. And by opposing David, Ahithophel is opposing God. And here we have a warning of what happens when we stand against God's king. We see the utter futility of standing against him. And the end that awaits those who stand against him, it is an end of despair. And yet thankfully the chapter doesn't end there for there's another way to respond to God's anointed king on display at the end of this chapter. When David came to Mahaniim, Shobi the son of Nahash from Reba of the Ammonites and Machir the son of Amiel from Lodibar, And Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curs, and sheep, and cheese from the herd. For David and the men, the people who were with him to eat, for they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. This is a fascinating group of people, and it's not just because of their names, which is fascinating. If you are in a life group and you have to read this passage, I am sorry. The first, Shobi, is the brother of Hanan, who was the Ammonite king who started the israelite ammonite wars back in 2 Samuel 10, 11, and 12. Back at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 10, David reached out to console Shobi and his brother at the death of their father. And Hanan rejected David, but apparently Shobi did not. He was touched by the kindness of the king. The second, Machir, took care of Mephibosheth back in 2 Samuel chapter 9 before David took him in to his family. Apparently, he also was touched by the king's kindness. The third... Barzillai, he'll show up later, and it's another story of David's great kindness toward his family. In each of these, then, we see support for David in connection with David's own kindness. What a different response than that of Ahithophel. Ahithophel rejects his king and, by extension, the Lord. And yet here we see a group of men who even in David's affliction, even in David's exile, align themselves with God's king. And they respond to the kindness that God's king has shown them with kindness of their own. You know, these last few verses might come across at first glance glance as, as nothing more than just a historical footnote. Information that provides us with what actually happened. But in reality, they provide us with a powerful charge as we come to the close of this text. The text here is forcing us a question that we have to ask. Each of us has to ask, how are we going to respond to the Lord's King? Are we going to be like Ahithophel or are we going to be like these three men at the end of this chapter? Let me put it another way. Here's the message of this chapter. God's purposes for his king will never fail. You can be completely, utterly confident of that. We've seen that in Jesus, God's true king. His plans and purposes for his king will never fail. But we have to ask, how will we respond to him? How will we respond to that king. first Again, that first half of that statement is abundantly clear. God's purposes for his king will never fail. We see God at work in his hidden providence on behalf of David doing exactly what he intends to accomplish for David's good, his chosen king. What's more than that? We see that to oppose the Lord and oppose his king is not just utterly futile, it is utterly foolish. Who can hope to stand against the Lord or his king? And the Bible makes it clear there, there are only two options when it comes to the Lord's king, opposition or submission. There's no middle ground. It's opposition or submission. You are either Ahithophel or Shobi. You are either Mesa or Machir. You are either Absalom or Barzillai. And when it comes to King Jesus... We will either oppose him or we will submit to him. At our worst, we are people who long to throw off the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus. The dividing line of opposition and submission, it's not out there, it's right down each of our hearts. It's because of this reality that this chapter matters so much to us this morning. Don't miss God's commitment to his king on full display in this text. God's purposes for his king, ultimately King Jesus, will never fail. And your response to him is the most important thing that you can wrestle with this morning. But in light of the gospel, there is more. Because when it comes to King Jesus, he is our King, yes, there is a really, very real call to obedience to him in response to his kindness, yes, but the wonder of the gospel is that those who are in Christ are united with Christ, and because of being united with Christ, we can be assured that God's purposes and plans for his King are also his purposes and plans for us as well. His purposes for his king will never fail and his purposes for the people of the king will never fail. And you can stake your life on that. That no matter what comes your way, you can rest confident that the Lord is seated on his throne and that through the hidden providence of God, because of the victory of his king, King Jesus, he is working good for you. God's purpose is for his king. And the people of the king will never fail. How will you respond to him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for pulling the curtain back and giving us a glimpse of how you are at work in this world, even when we can't see it, we can't understand it, our lives don't make sense. Thank you for giving us hope and confidence, exactly what we need through your word. From that place, God, we ask that you would help us to be a people who respond to you, to your king, not with opposition, but with submission, gladly following your king, gladly following Jesus, knowing that your plans and purposes for us are good. It's in Christ's name we pray.